Great. Thanks for that, Gary. Um, uh, and, and thanks for Beef and Lamb for, for providing this opportunity. Like everyone else, I'm, I'm still learning uh, exactly how to um, make most of this technology and, and make it go smoothly. Uh, I'm not there yet, so I apologise for any... Uh, it doesn't go as smooth as, as we'd like it to. Gary, I might just, in terms of questions, I might just get you to note down any that come through as I'm talking, just in case I'm, I'll miss any that we can come back to at the end. Okay, happy to do that, yep. Excellent. Um, look, in terms of today's presentation, I want to start sort of at a, at a high level. What, what, what does COVID mean for New Zealand agriculture? Because there's some themes that are go across the sectors. Um, and then from there, we can roll down into, into what it means for red meat farmers and the outlook for red meat prices in New Zealand. If we go to the first slide, um, sorry, the one after this one. Yeah, so just a quick introduction about myself. Um, for those of you that don't know me, I'm, I work uh, I'm with Rubberbank. Rubberbank has a dedicated team of researchers and analysts globally. So there's 90 of us spread across all the key markets we operate in. Um, there's three of us here in New Zealand. I'm based down in Dunedin. I cover animal proteins for New Zealand. Um, we have Emma Higgins based in Christchurch. She covers dairy and Hayden Higgins who's actually no relation based in the, in the Hawke's Bay. And the idea of, of having different members in different parts of the globe is we can communicate with our different team members to get a real feeling of, of what's happening on the ground in different parts of the, the world in real time, uh, which enables us to bring some of the insights that I'll, I'll touch on today. In terms of the summary, so, so both what I'm going to run through today and some of the key messages I want to get across. Um, look, this will, will create some pretty significant headwinds for agriculture, like it is all sectors um, across the globe. But I think it's important to remember that New Zealand farmers are generally coming into this situation in, in good shape. Um, we do believe that um, as a, as a, the outcome of this pandemic outbreak, there will be a significant decline in, in global demand across the board spectrum for agricultural commodities. But there will be specific developments or factors relevant to certain sectors that partly help to offset that drop in demand. And we'll touch on it uh, soon, but you know, African swine fever is a, a great example for animal proteins. But ultimately we do see that the US prices of, of agricultural commodities falling um, up to significantly in the first half and even in the second half of, of this year. We think the depreciation in New Zealand dollar will provide an enormous amount of shelter against those prices for New Zealand producers. So we can, when we convert those falls in US dollars term to New Zealand dollar terms, the fall in New Zealand dollar will help to offset some of that. My general takeaway or high level summation for red meat is that I see prices easing rather than a significant decline but some really positive opportunities that would have otherwise supported, I think, quite strong prices for the second half of this year, like we've seen for the last two seasons, have been lost. So those upside, upside opportunities have, have turned into mitigants against some, um, some downside factors. This is still an incredibly fast-moving <laughs> and uncertain situation. So there's, there is significant downside risks that I think we need to be aware of and, and to keep an eye out going forward. In longer term, if you have time to touch on the end, just some, some thoughts around, you know, what are the silver linings here? You know, what are the opportunities for New Zealand agriculture, for New Zealand red meat, when we come through the other side and, and we realise that, that new normal? 
So if we just start on, on the first point, um, I might get you to click again, Jason. Sorry, some of these slides have um, uh, two parts to them. So as I said at the start, um, New Zealand farmers have come into the situation generally uh, in, in good shape. So commodity pricing across the, the spectrum, whether we're talking red meat, um, milk, uh, horticulture, viticulture, has been performing well for about four seasons in New Zealand now. So profitability across broad spectrum of se sectors for four years. And, and we're just showing that on the index price there. So we can see, you know, going back to that 2015, 2016 season, how uh, strongly prices have improved year on year. Um, that orange line was our original forecast at the start of the year, not, not where we're seeing it, it, it tracking now. On top of that, um, the, the processing sector generally uh, comes into this in, in good shape, in solid shape, um, reporting, you know, reasonably strong um, profitability. And we have seen a somewhat reduction in debt uh, generally across the sector over the last couple of seasons. Move on to the next one. Um, just touching on some of those uh, reasons why we've performed well. Uh, one of them has been the, the, the strong emergence of, uh, of China as, as a new market over the last decade and particularly strongly over the last um, two to three years. And I've got some slides later showing you when we're talking around red meat, um, particularly how, how strong they've become. But for some context around the, the share or, or percentage of exports, and this is all agri-exports, um, it's not just red meat, that go to China as opposed to some of their um, competitors, we can see, you know, since that free trade agreement was signed with China back in 2008, um, where China was sort of our fifth or sixth largest export market, taking just over 5% of our products. They've really shot up to, um, to, to dominate, uh, be the dominant market for, for our agricultural exports. Um, that's 2018. If, if I had 2019 on there, there would actually 31% of New Zealand's food and agricultural exports uh, went to China by value. Um, now, I'm sure this probably creates a, a bit of... Um, Concern among some of you out there in terms of concentration risk. So having too many eggs in, in one basket, all, all in one market, um, which is absolutely a valid concern. I think at 31%, doesn't actually matter what market we're selling into, we'd, we'd consider that a, a concentration risk. Um, but as I'll, I'll touch on later in the presentation, uh, at the moment that, that might prove to be quite beneficial as we move through um, the next 12 months. Move on to the next slide. The, the other factor that's really helped to support um, agricultural prices over the last three to four years has been you know solid or, or steady growth in the global economy so we can see um, the blue lines there just show that the annual GDP percentage growth for the world which hasn't been spectacular but it's been solid um, since the, the global financial crisis ticking along um, around that that sort of three to four percent the line up the top uh, shows China's growth. We know China's story and incredibly strong growth uh, through the 2000s, uh, to the to, through the 2010s starting to, to, to come off those highs, but by global standards still incredibly strong. What was interesting at the start of the year when we were doing a forecast, one of the things we highlighted was a concern that we'd start to see a, a slight slowdown in the global economy. And our original forecast was for the uh, global economy to slow down to 2.9%, to which technically is classed as a, as a global recession uh, under, under 
Um, why I flagged that and keep an eye on that, that China line as well, because later on I'll show you where our projections are now. Um, and 2.9% um, would be looking pretty good right now, um, but we'll, we'll carry on. And just to show you again um, how, how this has moved, um, the start of the year when we did our outlook, we, we sort of highlighted, you know, what are some of the wild cards or the things that might change our forecast for this year or, or keep an eye on. We had the New Zealand election, we had, we had Brexit, um, we had um, the US and China had just signed an agreement, which we thought there might be uh, a lot more flow of products from the States into China, more competition for us. And actually, in our original outlook, which we released mid-October, uh, sorry, mid-January, COVID virus wasn't wasn't even a factor. But by the time we started giving some of the early presentations, we said and there's also been this outbreak of this disease in, in China called uh, COVID-19 or, or coronavirus. Um, so that's something to keep an eye on. Well, since then, I think we all know the story, but um, that's become you know from one of the wild cards to the to the really the only only story in town. And if we move on to the next next slide, you know, February became all about COVID. Uh, and, and it was that China story. We started to hear about the outbreak of the disease and, and it seemed to get more and more um, significant, um, particularly in that Wuhan province and then it, and it spread wider throughout China. And we started to see, you know, actions being taken to help spread the Stop the spread of that disease. Um, uh, so we saw uh, restaurants and eating out places being closed down. Um, it happened over the, the Lunar New Year period. So a lot of Chinese workers had, had gone home and they were told to stay home. So that had impacted supply chains and, and ports were clogged up and, and products couldn't get through. And of course, when 31% when of our products go there, that, that became a big issue for us in, in February and particularly for, for red meat. Um, it, it was a, a supply chain issue, so we were really struggling to get product um, from, from New Zealand, not just to the ports in China, but through the ports out, uh, out to the provinces where it's been consumed, and, and even there where there was a shutdown in food service, we were noticing a significantly drop-off in demand. But since then, it actually shifted from being just a, a China issue um, to becoming a, a global pandemic. And that really did change the picture and change the game uh, altogether. So, so we know since, since, since March and, and through April, you know, the epicentre of the disease has shifted from China, from, from Asia, into other really important markets for us, particularly the US uh, and into, into Western uh, Europe. Thankfully, um, it, as it became a global pandemic, China did um, start to get on top of the disease. Uh, and as they got on top of the disease, they started to ease some of the restrictions that they had in place um, that, that enabled those trade routes to, to, to open up, while at the same time we're starting to see issues in other parts of the, parts of the world. If we move on, just to, to show you, to reinforce again how, how fast things are, are changing, I mentioned at the start our original forecast for, for GDP growth um, for 2020 was 2.9%. Um, you know, and, and our updates from our, our global economics team through February and March, it was sort of, at one point, weekly significant changes and uh, in, in, in decline. To the point, I don't actually have our latest update down here, but a couple of weeks ago, 
our latest update was a, a negative 2.7% decline. And I'll, and I'll touch on the economics a, a bit more soon, but I just wanted to sort of highlight, you know, how, how quickly this has changed and the significance of that change. Because to swing from a, a positive 2.9% growth GDP uh, to a, a negative 27 within the space of uh, just a couple of months, really does fundamentally tilt things on ahead, um, the, the world that we will be operating in over the next 12 months. Of course, the, 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 the economic damage we're talking about isn't uh, so much the, the disease itself, but it's the measures that have been put in place to um, contain, control, um, the, the disease. So, so the shutting down of the borders, the reduction in air travel, the, the, the reduction in, in trade, the, the closing or severe restrictions around um, food service, um, infrastructure around um, supply chains, uh, people being told not, not to go out, um, not to go about their normal activities, that it is really sort of grinding things to a halt, which, which obviously has, um, as we all know, it has immediate implications, but it also has uh, longer term implications beyond that. As we start to, to come out of these measures, there's a, there's a lingering economic uh, impact. So if we move on to the next one, look, I think one of the, the fortunate things to, to point out is, is the timing around some of this. So China, um, as I said, February was very much the China story. Um, as we moved into to March, we actually saw started to see that recovery in, in China and it started to become a, a more of an issue elsewhere. But thankfully, as it became an issue elsewhere, China really did start to, to come online again. Um, if we look at the reduction in, in activity, so Yum Brands is a brand that owns KFC, Pizza Hut, Taco Bell in China. At the end of January, um, they had 30% of their stores closed. The year-on-year sales were down 40 to 50%. As of late March, that had changed to only 5% of their stores had closed and, and sales were down only 20%. Uh, and that, that has improved since then. If you look at the year-on-year -year decline of, of New Zealand red meat shipments to China um, through February and March, a, a significant decline through February. So around 54% reduction. So we sent 54% less meat to China in February this year than we did the, um, the, the previous year. Um, by March, that had changed to only a negative 25%. Uh, and, and we're waiting to get uh, April's figures in, in the next couple of days, but I, I suspect, again, we've seen further improvement. What is interesting, though, I think, when you look at um, red meat exports through that time is export values, so, so the average export values, so, so what we're actually getting for our product, uh, actually improved. So, so year on year, the, across all exports, not just to China, but the, the average export values we were getting for, for lamb, for what we're getting for beef, were actually higher in February this year than they were in February last year. So that shows we, you know, we did have you know, reasonably good market diversity. Um, we were able to redirect products um, that would have otherwise gone into China into other markets that were strong at that time, uh, particularly the US, uh, particularly parts of Europe, uh, Europe and, and some of those secondary Asian markets. And that's sort of my, my point around the, the timing being really important, because if this all happened at, at one time, there wouldn't have been that same 
ability to redirect those products and maintain value. Now, as we're starting to um, face start face challenges in that in that U.S. market in particular and parts of, of Europe, um, Asia, uh, so China is coming back online. That enables us to, to redirect that product back into to China. Move on to the next slide. Um, but as I've highlighted, you know, demand beyond China. Uh, very much is the issue, particularly in food service, which is a, an important sales channel for, um, particularly for New Zealand exports around our, our, our beef and lamb, um, and, and particularly some of those higher value cuts. So as we know, um, as we've experienced here in New Zealand, as um, food service, so, so your restaurants uh, are shut down, we've seen significant drop off in activity across the globe in different countries. It's probably important to point out that, that food service encompasses a, a range of, of different types of restaurants. So we've certainly seen a major drop off in your sort of your dining out or, or fine dining restaurants that have all but come to a halt. But in different parts of the world, we, we have seen what we call the, the quick service restaurants. So your McDonald's, your KFC, have continued to operate in some way and capacity. So um, think of sort of where New Zealand is at level three now, where you can go and get takeaways, you can go sort of click and collect, where you can go collect food. A lot of our, uh, our export partners have been sort of operating at that level. So it hasn't been a complete shutdown for, for all, all of those sales, sales channels, but it has been a, a significant reduction. Of course, the flip side is we've seen a, a major increase in the volume of food sales through, through retail. Um, and, and there's two parts to this. Um, one, obviously, people aren't eating out as much, so um, they've got to substitute that by eating at home. But also that, that panic buying effect where we've, we've had people really stockpile food and, and build up food. Um, of course, so that's not so much structural demand in terms of you can't continually um, uh, purchase and, and keep consumption up at, at those high levels. And, and by and large, the, the increased spend in, in food retail hasn't offset the overall um, reduction spend from the food service. But it does very much depend on the particular sales channels that, that different either companies or, or different products or, or different cuts are sold through. We'll move on to the next slide. So in terms of, of sort of um, red meat and, and, and where where it's sold in, in, in our key markets. In the US, um, beef is very much an eat-out food, so, so very much in that food service space. And likewise, the, the lamb products that we send to, to the US, which tend to be your higher value French rakes. So, so again, these are ones that are gonna be eaten out um, at the restaurant, so significantly impacted. Um, luckily, uh, a high proportion of our beef products does go through that, that quick service change ch channel. So, so your McDonald's, which again is operating just at, at reduced um, capacity. When you head to, to Europe, it's much more of a, a, a retail story. Um, red meat, um, not as, as predominant through the food service channels. Um, yes, it's still important, uh, again, for those 
probably higher value cuts, but still a lot of um, red meat products sold at, at, at the retail level. And that's probably why we're seeing now a, a, a real um, roadblock or, or real challenges around getting product in, into US market more so than Europe. Not to say that Europe's not affected, um, but, but um, US is really um, feeling it um, now. And, and, it's, and I'll touch on this soon when I talk about domestic production in the States. It's not actually that easy necessarily to, to easily switch sales channels from food service to food retail, i.e. If, if you say, well, we've got a lot of um, beef that was going into food service that doesn't need as much, but um, retail needs it more. Um, it, it's not a straight case of just being able to, to, to re redirect it. Um, there's supply chains challenges, um, there's packaging issues uh, and a whole sort of range of uh, other, other challenges that we'll touch on soon. Blake, just jump in there with a question around um, lockdown. I guess we're pretty unique here in the world in New Zealand that, you know, our, our government's made the decision to go to, you know, a pretty tough lockdown by world standards, isn't it? Whereas I guess the rest of the world, and, you know, I talked to my sister-in-law in Perth and a, and a few others, and they seem to be fairly relaxed compared to us. And I guess that, that that's quite different around the world, isn't it? Yeah, it is, Gary. And that's probably my, my point around sort of particularly the impact around um, food service. So, so in other countries, it, it's not like you can't, it's not like we, when we're at level four, where it was just not possible to get any um, food from a, from a restaurant or, or, or a takeaway outlook or anything like that. It has been happening, but it's significantly reduced uh, capacity. But, but what's interesting from, from here on in, um, you know, touch wood, hopefully New Zealand, if we maintain, uh, if we were able to control the situation, we're able to sort of come out of this in quite a staged and relatively quick manner, we get back to some level of, of normality, possibly quicker than some of these other countries that are, uh, the question is now, okay, we haven't been as strict, but how do we come out of this? You know, how, how do we, what does that look like? And increasingly that's looking like it's over sort of several months, over, over a quarter or, or longer, rather than sort of a, a, within the next month. So, so the initial impact might not have been as quite as severe, but the lingering impact on, on, on demand might, might be longer. So just in terms of, you know, some really interesting dynamics building on what we're talking about on, on, on the US, what has what that meant? Well, when we talk around um, beef products or, or lamb products, what we're finding is that it's not so much the products themselves, but it's the particular cut where, um, where pricing has been impacted. So those, those lower value, traditionally lower value cuts, your, your, your rounds, um, your, your manufactured beef, um, those that aren't sort of a, a fine dining experience have really just shot through the roof. So they're, they're really struggling to keep up demand for those as people, again, shift from those eating out uh, to eating home. The flip side has been those, those high-value cuts, your, your primal ribs, your, your, your French racks, your loins, have gone the other way uh, and, and really taken a nosedive as, as the demand, demand for those cuts um, simply aren't there. Um, this this is very much a, a function of that that immediate shutdown in, in food service activity or, or restrained food service activity, but it's also probably a trend we're likely to see continued beyond the COVID containment 
part phase of this um, situation, and once it becomes a, an economic issue, uh, and, and people one aren't eating out as much because they don't have as much disposable cash, um, and and secondly, you know, if they want to if they want to eat out or if they want to have beef, uh, we think they're probably more likely to, to trade down. So instead of having a, a, a fine prime steak. Um, you might go out to a burger joint and, and have a burger instead. So again, supporting supporting values for those low value cuts, um, but putting downward pressure on those high value cuts. Of course, you know when you're selling a an animal, um, you're not selling cuts; you're, you're selling the whole animal. So so what's really key is the overall carcass carcass, carcass value. Um, and and looking at that in that situation, the increase in those low value cuts at this stage probably isn't enough to offset the, the decline in those high value cuts. Hey, just like just a question come come there about um, on top of the, that change in the US and everything that's going on. What about the the British supermarkets? Is there potential for them to support British farmers um, with the Brexit change? Yeah, look, more more generally, I think I think that's a really interesting point because because I think we're going to see countries around the world potentially take a more protectionist view, particularly when it comes around food supply. So suddenly, for the first time in a long time, food security, so feeding your population, particularly in you know Western democracies, uh, is going to become an issue. Um, so so it will no longer necessarily through the situation be a given that people can go to their supermarket and, and support, um, get, get the food they want to buy. So I suspect going forward, governments may look at, at, at policies around how can we protect our, our domestic food production producing industries? Uh, potentially, how can we gear them up to ensure that going forward that food security won't be a challenge again? I think what's really important for New Zealand and, and for our, our trade negotiators and, and our marketers in the market is to ensure that that discussion is not so much around ensuring domestic production and supplies, but ensuring they've got uh, viable and secure food supply chains. And I think through this whole situation, New Zealand has demonstrated an ability to continue to producing food, being able to export it through extreme situations and still get it to those to those markets and those buyers that need it. And I think we'll be able to sort of um, provide this hopefully as some leverage to go, yeah, understand why you want to protect your, your local producers from a sort of a, a government level. Um, but I think you need to think more, more broadly around um, secure food supply chains. And New Zealand's one place where you can rely and trust that we will we'll get, um, get it there. Um, and saying that, I do accept the point. I think potentially we'll we'll see, you know, concerted campaigns like we're seeing in New Zealand now. You know, buy local, um, support your local businesses, um, similar around um, domestic productions. Don't want to need to dwell on this graph. Um, just showing this. This is across not just red meat, but where agricultural product pricing has gone on um, across some of our key key indicators, whether that's whole milk powder futures, um, whether that's cotton futures, um, sugar pricing, where it's, so we indexed it in, in January, and you can see the general trend of prices since then, um, which have, have fallen significantly as, as an impact of all the stuff we've been talking about.
but as, as I've said, it you know, very quickly it's becoming not so much about the containment issues, it's becoming the economic issues. Um, and, and this is a, a graph, some of you may have seen it, to me it, it always finds it fascinating. The one on the left, this is US unemployment claims over two-week periods. And if you look from 1990 um, through till 2000, you know, it never got above sort of 700,000 claims over, over a two-week period. Um, what we saw um, a month ago is we saw 10 million in, um, US people claim for unemployment. This is actually quite out of date because since then it's gone to 23 million. So that, that uh, line there you can actually double. So the, the scale of the unemployment, the scale of the economic impact that this is having is really unprecedented. So, so we, we, we simply aren't used to circumstances like this. Um, of course, in the US, we, we would expect once they do come back online that um, some jobs will come back, that there will be some form of, of, of bounce or recovery. But what we're seeing in, in China today is, you know, it's not a, not a sharp or, or dramatic bounce. It's more of a, a steady return to, a, to normality. And, and one of the ways we've tried to, to, to track activity in, in China is just looking at traffic data and comparing um, how much traffic there's been um, the first week of April this year compared to the first week of April last year. And you can see, apart from Wuhan, most of those main um, cities did get back to, to normal levels, um, but certainly not, um, not this sort of sharp, sharp increase. And well down over the weekend, um, when, when you know people are normally out spending money doing stuff, shows confidence um, erosion um, and, and people being a lot more more conservative. So all of that, remember, I showed the, sort of the graph at the start, saying you know we were starting to get a wee bit worried that we might get down to, to 2.9%. Uh, as, as I've already mentioned, now we see that decline in the vicinity of negative uh, 2.7%. Uh, and, and China itself down to almost only 1% growth, which is really uh, unprecedented in our times with dealing with them. We're used to dealing with a trading partner that's um, operating at least 6% and above growth, so, so continually year-on-year -year growth demand. So, so so China, yes, still going to be important, but even in China, they're going to feel some of these economic impacts. They're going to feel the flow and effects from unemployment, from reduced wages, reduced discretionary spending. And you can see on the on the, the right hand side there that a forecast for 2020 is you know pretty much all of our major trading partners are going to enter into a recession. We do. We are expecting a, a reasonably strong bounce back in twenty twenty one, but e even at bounce back rates of, of that amount, um, they're still not getting. Those economies won't be close to operating where they would have otherwise been if it hadn't been for for, for COVID nineteen. I'll just get you to push through a few here, Jason, because I'll talk through this as we go. It's a wee bit complex. A few more buttons. Yep, that will do. So how we've tried to sort of um, stylize it, as, as I've said a few times, initially it was a China issue, then it became a rest of the world issue. And the issues have been very much been around, um, firstly, logistics. So 
blockages and, and challenges with the supply chain. So either not being able to easily get it to where it needs to go or, or high cost in doing so. Um, secondly has been that disruption to the food service. And thirdly is around income. So, so the economic impacts mean people have less to, to spend. So on here, we've just shown it by month by month. Um, the red means a, a more significant negative impact for uh, food and agricultural demand. The green means uh, positive, and the lighter the shade of green, the, the less the impact. So January, February, as, as we know, was very much a, a major challenge or, or issue in China. We are now starting to, to come through that, and, and, and uh, we, we do very much see China is not being close to 100%, you know, back on board, but sort of in that 80 to 90% range, get, getting getting back there, um, both logistically and food service. So some food service outlets are, are performing really strongly, those quick service restaurants. Um, some of the others, your, your traditional um, hot pot restaurants where involves a, a large groups of people getting around and, and sharing food, um, Obviously, that the confidence of people to eat that way has been impacted. So, so still not at a hundred percent there. Um, but, but coming back online and getting close to some semblance of, of normality. But again, in that in that time frame, we've seen the rest of the world um, take a hit and take an impact. Um, now, now logistics again, the products are, are getting by and large the products, the the markets they need to. Initially, we had that, that panic buying wave, so that was really positive. So that was what was again, driving up initial demand for, for some of those products. But once that once that comes to an end, you know, and those products are, are being consumed, there's that lag effect where people aren't buying as much because they've got to get through what they've eaten. And we do very much see the impact of, of food service being something that will persist through, through April, May, and potentially into June and, and beyond. Uh, in, in those in the US and in, in the Europe, and that comes back to the point before when we were, when I was talking to Gary around it. It's really unclear the lingering impacts of. Um, okay, they might not have been severe as severe with their lockdown, but they may be operating at a, at a longer time at the levels they are now. And then we do transition from that um, uh, into that impact, impact income, income impact, so that, so that economic impact. The, the, the key offset we've, we've seen through this has been the New Zealand dollar. Um, so in the weakening of the New Zealand dollar, uh, effectively the worse this pandemic has, has got, the weaker the New Zealand dollar has become as, as money has and, and capital has been redirected from, from riskier, riskier currencies into what are considered safe currencies in, in the US and, and the yen. Blake, I see you've got no colour there for the New Zealand domestic um, economy. Is that because you're not quite too sure? What what, what What's your thoughts there domestically? Yeah, sorry, that, that's New Zealand dollar, not... Oh, not, uh, sorry. Yeah, 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 prob yeah probably, sorry. probably just... Um, probably just not one that we tend... Given, given, the, given the, the, the size of the red meat market, not one that we... Um, actively track as, as much. Um, for beef, I think it's probably been um, reasonably strong again through that, that retail sales channel. Um, we've, we've seen strong growth. Yeah, so 
and it's not just all the demand side. Um, what we're seeing, particularly out of the, the, the US at the moment, and, and we know here in New Zealand as well, is the impact on, on processing and, and production. Um, and, and it really is causing major um, disruption in the US. Um, they don't have, so in New Zealand, the approach that's been taken has been um, rather structured. Um, so um, it's been about complying with government rules and regulations, particularly around the social distancing. So having to ensure workers are spaced two metres apart. So on a processing chain, that obviously um, significantly reduces your, your throughput. So you've got to have less people working on the, the chain. Um, but what it has meant is we, we haven't had those, those significant outbreaks of, of COVID implants that meant whole plants have been shut down. It has meant that by and large workers have felt relatively safe going to work, so have turned up. What we're seeing in the US across not just beef but poultry and, and, and pork is very um, sporadic plant closures or significant operating at significantly reduced capacity because uh, staff simply aren't turning up because they don't feel safe um, or, or they've become sick and, and, and plants have to be closed down. And another element that's relevant to the state to, is liability. So, so processors um, simply not willing to take the risk of operating with, with um, potentially sick employees and, and the liability that, that comes with it. And that's caused, um, as I've said, major disruption in, in the processing to the point they are, are now talking around um, potentially having to, to, to liquidate stock, particularly uh, pork um, or pigs, and particularly poultry. That doesn't have quite the same ability as cattle to, um, to, to, in those other sectors, they really have to push, continually push them through the sector and don't have the ability to, to hold on to them until, until a time comes when they, they can process them. Um, but we have seen um, beef production in the US significantly drop off. So again, at the same time that, that um, retail demand is, is increasing strongly, we've seen a, a drop off in, in processing capacity. So you're getting a, a situation where retail prices for beef or wholesale prices for beef are slowly in the US. But actually, what farmers getting paid is really going through the floor because they because they can't simply can't get them away. Of course, the question becomes, you know, is this an opportunity for New Zealand? Um, and, and potentially, um, it will put upward prices pressure on, on beef prices over the coming months. Um, but again, it's important to remember that the beef New Zealand produces generally goes into. Um, those those crook service restaurant channels, those food service channels, where, where demand is, is still slightly down, more so than the food retail space. Um, yes, they can be repurposed, but but it's not quite as um, straightforward as simply simply as simply sending the containers to to a different end um, yes. destination. The other important thing to remember is, um, while the US in the short term do have a a beef shortage as they can't get it processed. They still don't have a cattle sorted shortage as such. So there's still a lot of cattle on the ground that still need to go through the system um, at some stage, potentially later in the year. Just, um, I've already talked about the New Zealand dollar. In terms of air forecasting, Rubberbank sees it uh, 
you know, out six, six months out to the end of September, getting down as low as uh, 54 cents against the US dollar. Um, looking a year out as some of those other, as the global economy starts to recover, we see it uh, coming up a wee bit, but still operating, you know, well below, well, we have been operating over the last sort of four to five years at 57 cents. And, and I've got a slide later on just to show you in, in real terms how that makes quite a difference. And importantly, it's not just the New Zealand dollar against the US. Um, you know, the trade weighted index there is showing against some of our key competitors, uh, against some of the uh, other key uh, markets that we're selling into, where we're comparatively weakening against them. But there are, you know, that sort of at a quite a high global level, we see a significant impact on demand for agricultural products. But there are a number of sector-specific ones that I want to touch on, and we can move through this slide because I'll I'll touch on um, the red meat ones now. So, look, as I said at the start, where where I see um, you know red meat prices for New Zealand producers going over the next. Well, I suppose for the rest of the season initially, but as we look 12 months out, as prices to generally ease from where, where they've been, um, rather than significantly drop off a, a cliff. But I do think what we've lost is some really strong upside opportunities. So um, it, it's turned factors that have, would have driven up the pricings we've received in the second half of the year. And to me, they're more mitigants against a, a general so softening of values. Uh, and, I, and I've got four areas there. I've already touched the New Zealand dollar, um, but, but African swine fever is still very much at play, tight domestic supplies and reduced Australian exports. And I'll go through each, each of them. In the coming slides. So it's probably probably good to quickly recap where, where prices are at the moment and, and where we've come this season because it's, as I've got there, it's been, been quite a ride because we've gone from, you know, extreme highs at the start of the season when we go back to October and prices both for, for bull and, and lamb were, were traditionally starting to, to flatten off and, and come down, sort of kept going north, kept going higher to the, to the point, you know, we were had, you know, $9 a, a lamb at the start of December. What we saw in December, though, was a, a reasonably significant correction uh, driven by China. So intervention by Chinese authority um, to help reduce or, or drive down some of the domestic pricing then. Um, this involved um, releasing stores of, of frozen protein that we had. It involved uh, opening up um, access for, for, for competitors in terms of accrediting a, a greater number of, of of beef plants particularly, um, and also loosening some stuff around the grade channel trade. So all of this put you know significant prices on in December and January. So this is sort of I suppose just to highlight that where we've got to with pricing hasn't all, all been about COVID-19. There were, there were factors at play before that. On top of that, um, you know, I, I know you guys in, in the North Island particularly, you know, the, the effect of, of drought through that January, February period when there were, were high levels of, of supplies coming online. You know, at the same time, we were starting to see China in, in that February period starting to um, reduce demand as COVID impacts started to have an effect. So we sort of got to, got to March at a time 
to stabilise the whole sort of the, the low point of the season. Uh, and then we had the lockdown in New, Ze in New Zealand itself, which significantly reduced processing um, capacity. Uh, so it significant, uh, increased the, the, the cost of producing per unit. Um, and at the same time, the risks associated with trying to get that product into the market went up as well. So that's why we've seen sort of prices um, continue to go down at a time of year when we're expecting them to start to, to stabilise the hold and, and potentially increase. That's sort of where we've got to now. I just want to quickly run through those, uh, and I know we're getting on for time, but I want to quickly run through those, those key mitigants at, at, at a high level. Uh, we, again, just, just to highlight how important China is for, for, for beef, um, last year they took 41% of our, our beef over the state's 29%, which is a, a complete flip from historically where exports have been. If we went back two years, that would have been uh, US at 45% and, and China maybe 20 to 25%. Uh, and sheep meat by value, 38% um, to China. Um, what's interesting though is, and again, I accept that's a, a significant concentration risk, but arguably it's less risk than we had 10 years ago with the global financial crisis. Because if we were looking at beef, we would have said that half of beef generally is going to the United States and half to the rest of the world. If we looked at sheep meat, we would have said half our sheep meat's going into, into Europe, into the EU, UK, and, and half into the rest of the world. Um, now it, it's probably more of a a roughly sort of um, third, third, third between, you know, China, US, Europe and the rest of the world, uh, depending on which product we're, we're talking about. But if we should skip through this slide. Look, it, we keep banging on about it, but, but you know, before COVID-19, the, the, the story when we're talking about outbreak of, of disease was very much African swine fever because the scale of impact that's had on, on Chinese pork production can't be understated. Um, a reduction in nearly around 12 million metric tonnes of, of, of pork last year. So 12 million tonnes of pork wasn't produced in China. That would have been otherwise that needed to be made up uh, from other places, partly from, from imports. And we can see on the right-hand side there, you know, across all countries, how beef imports just really skyrocketed last year. Um, if anything, COVID-19 has delayed the rebuild in China's um, hog herd. Um, so some of those logistical challenges that, that happened there in, in, in February, March, um, hampered the rebuilding of, of um, new farms and, and the like. So we actually expect um, their, their production to be down a further 15 to 20% this year. So an actually greater gap than, than we had last year. So this will mean um, the second, from, from now on in, there, there's still that huge protein gap. In saying that, it doesn't mean China's, one, not immune to the economic uh, impact on, on purchasing power. So as they start to experience um, greater unemployment, as they start to experience lower wages, it does reduce their spend they have available. Uh, in terms of, of price point, yes, the demand might be there, but you're only going to pay what you're required to pay to, to get that product. So there still needs to be um, robust or, or solid competition in other markets from, from buyers that are, are willing to ensure prices are, are held at a, at a reasonable level. 
won't dwell on this one too much, but, a bit, but it's just that, that story, we, we all know it, but, but in terms of domestic supplies here in New Zealand, um, we're still expecting them, particularly for lamb, to remain tight over the remainder of this season and into next season. It looks like the, the lamb slaughter for, for this year will be our lowest on, on record. So, so last year we just dipped under 19 million lambs slaughtered. Um, this looks to be, according to beef and lamb's estimation, is, is that to be down 2% further um, this year. Um, beef, beef up slightly 2%, um, but again, uh, enough in there to suggest that we won't have significant volumes of extra export values to find a home for in the market. And those levels of, of procurement competition will remain consistent. Only thing I will note, uh, note around sort of procurement pressure is what we've seen in the last two seasons is that the timing of selling of stock has, has become crucial. Uh, and if you're selling uh, at a time of the year that um, where, where there is a general shortage, um, it, it appears you know generally processes have been uh, appeared to prepared to pay sort of above the odds. But as we've gone through those periods where there's significant supplies, it's probably gone the other way. So, and I know that sounds silly because that's probably always been a factor. But I think the extremes of pricing we've seen through the season, that range between the peak of the season and the lull of the season and the corresponding prices has become more paramount. The other other key one, I think, is Australian supplies. So as we all know, they've faced various climatic conditions over the last few years. Um, and the main one's been drought. Um, so, so drought really has affected both their sheep inventory and their, their cattle numbers. They have had um, significant rainfalls in, in key producing regions that, that we do believe will start to prompt uh, an element of, of rebuilding over the next, uh, well, from, from now on in, which will mean they have less supplies on, on the, uh, available to the export market. And when you look at cattle, we expect their cattle slaughter, for example, to, to drop 14%, but their exports actually drop 17%, which is a, a significant reduction in, in competition from a competitor that competes in a number of key markets. So if you look in that, that US market, that US manufactured, um, US manufactured, beef market, you know, New Zealand and Australia make up sort of 70 to 80% of that, that market. So with 17% less availability out of, out of um, Australia, that goes a long way to offset in any potential drop-off in demand. And equally, um, as that last slide showed, you know, China's an important common market, as is Korea um, and Japan. So, so this does go some way to offset any potential drop-off in, in global demand. And likewise, with um, when you look at lamb, um, New Zealand and Australia supply something like around 70 to 75% of that global lamb export market. Um, and, and there won't be a significant increase in, in volume coming out of the two markets anytime soon. I've already touched a few times on New Zealand dollar, so I won't hark on about it, but I just wanted to show you why it's important in terms of, of what we're getting at the farm gate. So if you look at the, the top level there, I've just got some in-market prices taken from, from AgriHQ. Um, we can see that the US French rack 
Uh, sorry, if you look on the left-hand side, uh, the prices are in US dollars. If you look on the right side, prices are in New Zealand dollars. So the in-market prices in, in US terms of, of French rack and US imported 90CL, which, which is cow, have come off um, quite significantly, particularly when you look at that French rack through February. But when you convert it, and you can see, you know, it's tracking well below for French rack where it was um, this time last year and the US imported beef price has dipped below the five-year average. But when we convert that to, to New Zealand dollar terms, because of the weakening of the New Zealand dollar, French tracks are only just starting to track below where they were um, this time last year, uh, and similar with that imported beef price, similar to where it was this time last year, and still tracking above the five-year average in terms of what we're actually getting in New Zealand dollar terms when it's converted back um, to New Zealand values. Of course, uh, a lot of the gains with the, the dollar um, through this period um, we've probably already had. Um, you know, the, the depreciation of the New Zealand dollar, the weakening of the New Zealand dollar, you know, we're only expecting to go so far. Um, I know it's at 60 cents now, so there's still some room to come down from, from where it is. Um, but if in-market prices continue to track down, um, there's only so far or, or so much the New Zealand dollar can do to offset that. Look, in terms of you know what what that means from from here on, if if we look to the to the the remainder of the season, if we look at lamb and flattening of the curve is something we heard a lot about earlier on in, in the COVID days, and I think that's what we see with with lamb prices. So, the last two seasons in particular, we've sort of got to this stage of the season, um, things have, have steadied and then really started to to take off. Uh, I think we're, we're hopefully at a time now um, with New Zealand moving to level three, um, with, with processes getting back to, to um, significantly improve capacity, um, that, that prices hopefully had a, had a seasonal bottom. Um, and from here, there will be some lift. I just don't think it's going to be the same degree of lift that we've seen in the last couple of years. So, so probably something more similar to the trajectory you see in that 2015, 2016 um, line. What of course that means is, is when we start the, the next season, we, we start the season at, at a lower price point than where we were. Uh, and I think generally, and that's where I talked about an easing of prices, I, I expect prices to sort of travel below where they have been the last couple of years, but still above where they have been in that, that longer term five year average. So maybe somewhere in between those, those blue and orange lines, uh, but below that um, the top two lines. Blake, you might have, I think you might have answered the, the question that we've, that someone's put in there, but the question, would you expect the COVID lag to negate the usual late winter spring peak this year? I, I guess you, you may have answered that, but any comments about the impact of, uh, of the COVID lag? Is this in, ter in terms of domestic production? Like, I, I, I'm, I'm assuming that. I've just got someone yeah, else's question I, I, I there, think, and the, Andrew's yeah, question no, that you think, I think it's a good point. What I want to, to touch on, you know, the, the normal procurement dynamics have certainly been altered by this, not just as we go through the immediate term now, um, but it obviously means there's a lot more, proportionally a lot more lambs on the, on, on the ground now and going into winter than there otherwise would have been. Um, I think particularly down here in, in the south, um, when now's a, a time of the season we're expecting to get, get, get through, well through the kill, 
um, there's still some pretty scary numbers on, on, on the ground. The only probably good thing was that, you know, the restrictions in New Zealand production and reduced capacity happened at a time of the season where we were, we were kind of the, on the back end of the peak, peak of production. That could have been quite a different story if it was happening through through February and, and March and we had processing capacity for lambs go down 50%. Um, I, I think that's a slight silver, um, silver lining, but but I do think, I take the point, I think it will, to some degree, alter those normal procurement pressures that we see through through winter. So you've still got, in the South Island, you say there are still quite a, quite a few lambs on board on farms that you wouldn't normally have at this time of the year? Yeah, I think so, Gary. Yep, yep, no, we, we do. Um, I'm, I'm, again, based in Dunedin and down south, you certainly hear talk of farmers getting very concerned about um, both the numbers they've got on, um, while at the same time past year, depending on, on who you are, who you're talking to, sort of being back 10 to 15%. So, so there is a concern, there's a, a real pinch going into winter. Um, and, and it's going to be sort of you know really crucial over, over the next month of, of how much that processing capacity can can, can amp up to, to help take that pressure off uh, through the winter months. In terms of beef, if you look for the long term um, beefing beefing beef price, it, it's sort of operated in a reasonably narrow range since 2014, 2015. It sort of fluctuated, this is the bull price, uh, fluctuated between that 5 and $6 range, and it's either been just above or, or just below maybe 530 in the in the North Island as a, as a seasonal average. And we do know the back end of last year, it, it took off um, for, for some of those other factors I've already touched on, and we've seen a significant correction. Look, look going forward, I, I still see it operating in a similar range, but I think it's probably just on, on the weaker side of that um, $5.30 price point. Um, prime, I think, prime cattle probably uh, probably will be operating at a, at a reduced, um, below their, slightly below their long-term average. Uh, and again, that goes to around the dynamics of, I think your manufactured beef, your lower value beef cuts will, will hold up relatively well through not just this COVID um, period but but the, the lingering economic impacts it's going to be those higher value cuts that, that feel it more so so when you put that uh, across the whole carcass um, potentially you know prime prime feels it slightly more than yet than your manufactured beef that's sort of you know operating with with the best knowledge and and, and where we see things at the moment but I, I think it's really important to keep an eye out for, for what we call you know some pretty significant downside risks that if triggered it would alter where we see things so you know as i said at the start i think we weather this i think prices come off they ease but they don't go off a cliff but what we do need to watch is you know particularly in china if there was any kind of resumption or of an infection so they had to go back into some other form of lockdown or for whatever reason, the demand coming out of there didn't match the expectations that we thought it was going to. We kind of see it as a, as a, a really key bucket that we're going to dip a lot, uh, dump a lot of product into. If that doesn't eventuate, while at the same time other countries, the US and, and Western Europe, are still sort of spluttering along at reduced demand, I think that's when we would start to see a demand shock for, for, for red meat. If it's a, a worse than a global financial crisis, so... So air current predictions, as I said, a reduction in 2.7% GDP, so sort of similar to, to global financial crisis. 
if this, you know, if the impacts of COVID, if it lingers for longer and it's more significant than we think, and that shifts to negative, you know, 10%, that again will have flow-on implications. Third point, you know, touch wood, it, it looks like things are, are, are under control here domestically in New Zealand, but for whatever reason, if there was another outbreak here, and it did get into processing facilities and, and cause significant disruptions to, to their business, uh, and, and we had to continue operating at, at reduced capacity for prolonged periods of time, that would again put um, further pressure, downward pressure on, on prices. And the fourth one is, you know, a lot of this is, is factors in those assumptions around where the New Zealand dollar goes, and, and that it does continue to weaken against the, the US. Now, if whatever reason and for whatever government monetary or fiscal policies both here and other countries that doesn't happen and the New Zealand dollar um, holds or, or, or appreciates um, then that again obviously puts further downward pressure on, on what we're getting New Zealand return wise. Another a question. question yep. Sorry just another question there Blake do you see much risk for New Zealand with with a move back to protectionism? I mean, the, the question there is about the US market and, you know, protectionism from Trump, those sort of things. Is that a, is that a downside risk for New Zealand? Yeah, look, I, I think it is. And I, and I kind of touched on it before. I think, yeah, in, in the, oh, is this in terms of food supply chain or, or more generally? I, th I think more generally in terms of impact, of, uh, impact on the New Zealand beef. Yeah, look, it is, but that, that was one that was probably already identified as a, as a challenge for us going into this year anyway, uh, and something that probably just has to continually uh, play into the, to the, to the strategy around uh, diversification of, of market, ensuring the relationships with, with, with key markets and uh, key buyers within that market. I think the other interesting one to, to watch going forward is, um, is, is China and, and, and governments putting pressure on China in relation to COVID-19 uh, in terms of what, if any, role they've, they've played in, in terms of, uh, you know, could, could have they warned, have they, have they been as upfront with information as they otherwise could have been? And you have countries like the US and, and uh, China, uh, Australia as well starting to ask questions. Now, we're just starting to, to hear from China noises around um, Australia, for example. Well, if you start to ask those questions, perhaps we won't um, continue to drink your wine. Um, so from, from a whole geopolitical sense, not just protectionism, I think geopolitically, we're going to enter, uh, enter in a, a very interesting and challenging phase uh, for New Zealand that would that is heavily exposed to export markets, much more so than, uh, you know, Australia, for example, where they, where they have that domestic market. Uh, any uncertainty and risk in that space it does potentially have, have some downside for New Zealand. But the flip side is that's in lots of ways not new for New Zealand. Um, dealing with, with those trade issues and geopolitical risks uh, is something that we've been living with, you know, particularly since, since the 80s and, and since we have had to open up uh, into other markets. Another question's come in, and I, and I don't know anything about this, so I'm just going to read out what it says here. What happens if the US can sue China for $6 trillion? 
I'm just I'm assuming by reading that that uh, Trump wants to sue them for catching a, a virus, but I don't know much more than that. Yeah, look, um, I, I don't know specifically about that, but but again, I, I think that builds on the whole geopolitical risk and the uncertainty there. So we saw with that that China U.S. trade war, for example, and a lot of that was around leverage. It, it was around. Um, US wanting to get better balance on the, in their trade terms, uh, saying to China, you're buying a lot, we're buying a lot from you, you're not buying uh, much from us. We want to rearrange that. And that's kind of what we saw with the agreement in January um, between the US and, and, and China, which is why we flagged that as something to watch out for this year. Because effectively what that said was China committed to buying um, tens of billion dollars of, of agricultural products, including beef, from the US. Uh, and beef, for example, they, they were really um, reducing their barriers of entry that that, China, uh, that US beef producers had to go through in terms of um, traceability, in terms of use of growth hormones that have always been there. So uh, I can't answer that, the question specifically, but I, I, again, I think it does show that, that the vulnerability or, or that we do have to be very uh, alert to what's happening at, at that level. Might skip through, skip through this one. Um, move on to the next slide. I'll just quickly run through these because um, I know we're running out of time. But I, look, I think it's um, as Winston Churchill's uh, accredited as saying, you know, never let a good crisis go to waste. And it, it is important to, when we look through this, what are the opportunities for New Zealand? Uh, I think timing-wise, there will be a new norm, as we've touched on in the global food space and the global food market. It coincides at a time in New Zealand as a food producing nation is really asking some questions around where are we going, um, uh, wh what is our brand, um, what is our domestic regulations. So, so now if any is a good time to, to look at to capitalise and, and changes in the market because we're going through changes here domestically as well. As a producer, although proportionally we produce a lot of food, you know, in absolute terms, we don't have huge volumes of, of, of product that we have to move, you know, compared to Brazil for, with beef, for example. So it does enable us to be slightly more nimble. It does enable us to capitalise on the new sales and supplies channels that, that will come um, as part of this, you know, the rise of online, food kits and the like. Um, so, so we're probably better positioned than some of our competitors if we choose to, to capitalise on that. I can see as uh, building into this food had, had become a luxury for a lot of people. So we were increasing, consumers became increasingly concerned about stuff that didn't uh, traditionally, you know, it wasn't about the taste of the food, it was sustainability attributes and, and everything else, which I still think will be important. But I think the two most important ones will be around food safety and health concerns, both of which a New Zealand grass-fed red meat um, meet really well. And particularly if, if we can eliminate COVID-19 from New Zealand, whatever that means, apparently. Um, but, but using that to actually reinforce that brand. And, and Beef and Land themselves, I think, have done some really interesting work with the, the report they released in, in China, just looking at the, the initial sentiment towards New Zealand over the COVID period. And that's the graph on the right there. And, and it just shows, you know, from, from March onwards, there, there were a lot of positive sentiment just towards New Zealand generally. So, so uh, 
um, being seen as a as a small uh, island down the bottom of the world that isn't connected to some of these other um, negative things that are happening around the world um, is something in Chinese consumers' eyes, which was seen as really really positive. So how can we leverage that against our consumers? I've touched on the food security um, one. I think the biggest one though is actually, you know, we now have a window of opportunity to reposition agriculture uh, in the eyes of, like domestically, within the eyes of the public, the, the government, and, and I've got future talent there because as we look at, you know, employment opportunities over the next couple of years and, and we look at, um, well, particularly young people coming into, you know, what career am I going to go into? Um, tourism, um, hospitality, uh, education, uh, filmmaking, other ones that, that previously might have seemed quite appealing and, and may still do so. In comparison to ag, I'm probably going to really struggle. So I really think this is a, a time for agriculture to, to shine domestically. I don't think that's a, a beating our chests and saying how, how wonderful we are and, and kind of, a, I told you so, but it is important we do um, reinforce those message, messages around you know, how important we are, both from, a, from an economic position across New Zealand, but also at a, at a community level. Uh, and show willingness to really help New Zealand at all levels get through the next 12, um, 24 months and beyond. Uh, and that's where I really like that, um, that Meet the Need charity that, that's been established recently, uh, where, where farmers can, can send, um, send a cattle beast in, uh, gets processed at cost, uh, which gets turned into to mints to, to be distributed to food banks across across New Zealand, and, that, and, that, and I don't know that the charity well. My understanding is that was all in the pipeline before COVID nineteen, but I, I think that's just a real example of a tangible way that, that agriculture can, can can demonstrate just you know how we can be such a, an important part of the New Zealand community and support the New Zealand community going forward. I think I'm sure there's probably some questions that have come up that I've missed along the way, Garrett. They sort of they disappear off my screen screen quite quickly, unfortunately. Yeah, that's right. You just um, just Rob Brazen, I'll just question there. How likely do you think it is the New Zealand government eases their environmental regulatory program in order to stimulate economic activity post COVID nineteen? Yeah, really, really good question. It's a it's a hard one to to really. Get, get a gauge on. I think so. If you look at it from the from the climate change space, I, I don't expect to see anything significantly different in the short term. Remembering that the industry and government are currently working towards an on-farm price on emissions by 2025. So that's a five-year work period that's been run by the, the Climate Change Commission, which is independent of government. So in the climate change space, I. Uh, I don't think in the, the short to immediate term expect too much. The, the big one to keep an eye on and the one that's going to impact farmers more quickly, more significantly, is obviously the fresh water space. Um, currently, as of right now, that's with an independent panel who are reviewing all those submissions that farmers put in late last year and, and will provide a, a recommendation to the Minister. Um, my, my gut feeling is... Um, the minister will be keen to, to push forward with that um, and, and um, drive through those changes. Whether there's 
an alteration around the exact timing or degree of, of changes required. Um, well, that, that's, that's, I think, probably going to increasingly become an election issue. Uh, I, I think um, Labor, the Greens, will have to decide how far it wants to, to run on that. I, I, my, I've got no insights. My gut feeling is they'll, they'll want to continue to, to push forward. Um, I expect you to see um, New Zealand first and, and, and national potentially use it as some leverage. But I suppose the, the takeaway is at this stage, I wouldn't expect a, a significant well back in, in regulations or, or a significant delay in, in what's required. Um, there, might, there might be some stuff around the edges. And, and again, that's just, that's just my gut feel. Um, and, and Tom will tell, I suppose. Yeah, I guess the government's going to have to make some calls if they if they need New Zealand agriculture to be buoyant and to be doing very very well. They they don't want to be don't want to treat us as whipping boys at exactly the same time if they haven't got a if they haven't got a buoyant tourism and industry or something like that to back it up. Yeah, absolutely. Look, and I think that's again my point around this is where it becomes an opportunity for the industry because because the industry, I think, the, the general intent around a lot of these rules, the industry is on board with most farmers are on board with. It's the exact how it, the details of the changes, the, the the degree of what's required, the speed of doing it. So I think it's a, an opportunity for the industry to get beside the government and say, look, understand where you want to go. Um, we don't think we need to get there as quickly, but are willing to make some changes and actually take a rational, sensible approach forward at, at a time where, I won't say that the industry's got leverage, um, but it, 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 it's a time that relatively it's probably in a stronger position than it was three months ago. And uh, don't want to put you on the spot too much politically, but I guess we have got an election coming up in September, and you did highlight that as, as one of the, the potential things that we need to be aware of. Is the likelihood of that changing or still happening? What, what, any thoughts there in terms of election? Yeah, well, it'll happen. It'll just be whether it happens in September. Yeah, look, it, I, I, I'm probably really not qualified to say. Um, I suspect if we get out of, uh, all I can say is I'd expect the opposition to want to delay it to November, and I expect the government to try and push it, uh, to hold it where it is now. Um, if, if we come out of lockdown or level three in the next two months, and uh, next two weeks, and get to some level of, of normality, I'd, I'd imagine the narrative is um, it's quite safe to run an election. We've been out of that intense lockdown for a number of periods now there's no reason not to run it um, the, the flip side or, or the counter argument to that is that the government have had the ability over the last two months to almost speak exclusively to the New Zealand public um, and to really control the narrative and we almost need a little bit of time to let that settle down uh, to let the, 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 the implications of what's been done sort of take effect and, and New Zealanders to, to um, sort of step back from the, the immediate and back to this to, to understand who do I want to lead us going forward. Now, I know that hasn't answered your question, um, but that, that's kind of how I, I, I probably set playing out for Hunor and There's just, I guess, so much happening in this space that, um, and it's happened in, in six weeks. We've had, geez, almost like a tornado go through um, the economy goes through our houses, goes through everything, and we we're still trying to work out where this whole thing's settling. I was really intrigued by your 
the, the you know the figures every month that you're reforecasting, and it must be fairly tough to sort of to try and line all those things up and then predict what's going to happen from your team. Yeah, very much so. Yep, no, it, it's kind of. Uh, I've got a colleague writing sort of outlook pieces that are uh, supposed to be out the start of March and it kind of just got pushed every week because there was a new calculation around the dollar and our forecast each week. At some point, you've got to put a line in the stand and try and look at um, where trend-wise where we think see things going. And that's kind of what I've tried to point out there around you know the downside risks. Uh, keep an eye on that. We can only deal with the information we know at the moment, though. We've uh, got a couple of minutes left there. I guess if there's any um, any uh, questions or anything else from the audience, just to, to jump in that chat box, if there's anything else that's coming up. Just um, just while maybe someone's typing or if they're thinking about any questions, I just um, I just jump in there. This. We're learning a fair bit, as as everybody um, about about for, for beef and lamb and and running an extension program and these sort of things. We've given this a try. We've got another couple of these in the pipeline. As I say, two weeks time, we'll be back here with with Hayden Trotter. Um, certainly open for any comments or or questions or feedbacks and uh, feedback. And Jason, I'll probably put you on the spot a little bit here. Well, your email address on the spot, maybe, Jason. If anyone's got any feedback or comments about this format um, and, and, and those sort of things, email Jason or get in contact with you. It's probably the best thing in, in terms of open open feedback. Is that you comfortable with that, Jason? Yeah, no, thanks, Gary. Um, I just sort of worked with Rebecca Brownlee, and she's put together a little bit of a survey monkey uh, just quickly today that um, she will send out following this call, so later on this afternoon. Um, so if people can take the time, I'd really appreciate you just uh, flicking through. There's only about sort of five or six questions or so. Um, just to give us a little bit of feedback on, on how people found it, connecting the, um, the audio, et cetera, using this as a medium. Um, for extension and then uh, any suggestions I guess that people might have on, on future speakers um, you know following on with other sessions to come so so yeah just keep a look out for that email and really appreciate people taking the time to just fill that in for a couple of minutes. So just just while we do that there's a question come in with the state of the Aussie market is there an opportunity to export lamb into Australia that's a good suggestion fee. <laughs> Uh, I, I don't know if they'll be too happy about that, to be honest. Um, no, look oh, come on, right. they've been they've been stealing rugby players and bands and recipes for years, so they might as well have our lamb as well, eh? If they're willing to pay for it. It hasn't exactly helped them when they've stolen their rugby players, but um, <laughs> yeah, look, I, 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 yeah, no, pro probably not in the short term. I go. Like I'll just jump in there, just a bit of a question rather than typing it in. Um, just with, uh, I guess, the way we're doing things differently at the moment, this is an example. Um, you sort of talked about uh, rise of online supply channels. How might things kind of change? Have you got any ideas around that in the future, what um, our supply chains might look like? <laughs> Not really. Like other, other than I, I absolutely think... Online, for example, is, is nothing new. So online's been around for a while, but it, it's really struggled to to get much traction. Um, but I, I know, you know, from my own experience now, I've 
tried online stuff. I've ordered some some wood pellets for my fire online because I had to. Ordered some some beverages, some uh, food and stuff like that, and, and I'll probably do it again because it's actually quite easy. So I'd expect to see a significant growth in, in, in that. Now with that is, is possibly people that would have, you know, maybe gone out to eat or, or, or not got a, a nice cut, potentially looking at, well, how can I actually order in that kind of food um, to myself? Uh, and potentially the other trend is, you know, people have learned to, to cook at home or, or experience that. So, so different cuts that, potentially been harder for us to sell them in markets because people haven't known how to cook them or haven't had the desire to could become more um, more relevant or, or in demand um, but beyond that it's yeah it's probably tricky right now to see how those supply chains as, as such would sell it's probably more about understanding our, our relationships in the market and, and who who you know buyers in China how are they selling uh, and are we lined up to the ones that are going to be relevant over the next five years, or are we lined up with the ones that have been relevant over the previous five years? I guess the word disruption and change comes to mind, and Blake, your comments about probably we've thought about buying online, but we've just gone to the supermarket because it's been easy, whereas now we're buying online. The interesting thing we'll be to see is yeah, whether the consumer uh, goes back to its old habits or says, ah, I'm quite happy to have the courier to drop it off. It came in safely. So it's an interesting uh, future there. Yeah, and a bit of both. You know, people will often do revert back to habit, um, but, but I still think it will stick for a lot of people. Potential opportunity for the uh, for maybe those small smaller organisations, nimble companies, those sort of things as well too. Yeah, I, I think so. Absolutely. Yep, no, it's... Um, I mean, I mean the, probably the risk or, or the flip side that this has highlighted is, is for larger companies that have had, the, had multiple buyers in multiple markets, when things do get disrupted, um, the ability to redirect product and, and send it elsewhere. So that reinforces the, the importance of, of market diversity and, and buyer diversity. If you were a small supplier tied to one buyer in the US or a handful of buyers in the US or, or in China, um, your liability or your ability to um, redirect that product would be um, significantly greater. Mm. You wouldn't want to be a, a small a small time engineering firm in Auckland that all you do is service uh, Air New Zealand planes, would you? Yeah, no, no probably, probably not a great space to be. Yeah, yeah, and another suggestion just comes through. We'll wrap questions up shortly, but should we relaunch the once great Sunday roast as a tradition to grow domestic support? Good suggestion, Andrew. There's a marketing, there's a marketing idea for beef and lamb. Let's get the Sunday roast going, going again. Or why should we? Should be just an any day roast, maybe. I agree. Yeah, I think. I, I, I probably was a bit dismissive of the New Zealand domestic market before, but it, but it's still. You know, probably if you line it up against many of our trading markets, it's still still a significant, particularly for beef. It's still a still an important and, and relevant market. And, and again, you could do some some great messaging around um, the role of agriculture in New, in New Zealand and, and help build those connections, perhaps with urban people around maybe the ads and, and the PR campaigns that that come with it. 
Right, so it's, I think that well, I think uh, looking at the clock there, we said we we're going to going to wrap up at two o'clock, and there's no more questions come through. So, so I think I'll just do a little bit of a quick wrap up and say, hey, thanks very much to Rabobank and and Blake for all of your time and effort that you've put into that presentation. Um, there's a there's a lot of information there shared, and um, I've got pages of notes, and plus I'm glad I've got the PowerPoint because I missed a few things. So thanks very much for for Blake for coming on board and uh, and getting involved with this new format and giving us some information. And so we we have recorded. This. There will be some notes that'll go out. So, if anyone's got any more more questions or comments, um, certainly come back to us on that. And uh, and if you've got any general comments, I see a few comments come through about uh, about the formats work quite well. But any other comments, that survey will come through um, from from the team at Beef and Lamb. And um, yeah, I suppose normally if I'm standing in a woolshed, I'd say you know give her a, a round of applause to Blake. But it's a bit hard to do over line. But I think we've got to do it. Well done, Blake. Good yeah, effort. Another. Thanks, Gary, Jason, and the team. Only other thing I wanted to mention is this is a fast-moving space in terms of Rubberbank's updates. So Rubberbank clients get um, some hands, um, a monthly update emailed to them. Um, with, with for each sector, we'll, we'll, we'll provide you know where things have changed and, and where we think, see things going over the short term. Um, now, non-clients can go onto our website website and download that for free, uh, and equally. A podcast channel, so we run monthly podcasts. Um, if, if you just download um, Rabo Research on, on your podcast app, um, you, you'll see the range of them got on there, and, and that enables us. We're talking to some of those analysts in those key markets, for example, of the podcast with, with Don Close, our, our US analyst, tomorrow morning, just to um, discuss that disruption they're facing. Um, so yeah, there we go. Um, there's, there's some details there how you can access it. Uh, and that's a great way to, to keep up to date and that enables us to stay relevant and, and happening, what's happening in real time. But, hey, thank you very much. I um, really appreciate the opportunity.